My name is Thomas Hoke, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's uh, my privilege most of the time to uh, spend my life building up the community groups here and working with equipping and some other ministries. Uh, but every once in a while, I get the great privilege of preaching the gospel, which is today's task from John 15. We are bringing our series in the Gospel of John, the I Am series, to a close today uh, with the last I Am statement, I Am uh, the True Vine. And so I hope it is a wonderful time of worship in God's Word as we hear it. Uh, so speaking of college students and you're in finals, wonderful, please let's bless them, church. Let's give them coffee and everything they need and notes of encouragement and prayer and everything they need. Uh, I remember when I was sort of getting toward the end of my time uh, learning, not in college, but pastor school, uh, I, I took this class and I was one of just a few uh, American, just Americans in this class. It was me and maybe 20 other people, uh, none, of, none of whom were Americans. And so it was really interesting to learn about the Christian movement all over the world and how the gospel is going forth and, and so forth and all that sort of thing. <coughs> I'm a little ill today, so please bear with me. Uh, but what was interesting was one day we talked about how our, all our different cultures tend to have these sort of different metaphors for life. We call them sort of life metaphors. And so we talked about how in the West, often the metaphor that we have for life is that life is a journey, you know, or a highway. Life is a journey. We're sort of going in one direction. And what this really tells us about our culture is we're sort of progress-oriented and maybe a little individualistic because it's my journey, right, my journey. Uh, but we also learned, I learned, what was really interesting was I learned that um, for a lot of people uh, in traditional cultures, and particularly as I talked about in Africa, uh, there was the idea of life as a house, Life is a house, this place where you live with your tribe, with your family, your people. And what that revealed about their, you know, they're sort of more oriented toward the family and toward um, sort of the family identity, those sorts of things. And it was interesting how within these pictures, we really sort of encode our deepest values, who we think we are and what we think we ought to become and what sort of, what makes our life a success. How do we know if we've sort of fulfilled our creative purpose and destiny and all those sorts of things. And wouldn't it be helpful if we had a life metaphor that came straight to us from Jesus. Well, if that wasn't obvious, uh, today that's exactly what we have. Jesus gives us one here in John 15. Uh, and so let me first read that text to you today. It says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. <coughs> I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing." If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, 
that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Parkview, I want you to hear today from this passage, uh, from the scripture that's been given to us by God to teach us and train us in godliness, that since Jesus is the source of true human flourishing, connect to him deeply today. Since Jesus is the source of true human flourishing, connect to him deeply today. In this passage, Jesus sort of puts on his artist equipment and his hat. I don't know what he, and he paints us a picture through this vine image, this vine metaphor, a picture of true spiritual reality. By studying that picture, we can learn about who he is, first of all, about what his father, the vine dresser, does, and finally, what we, the branches, are to do. Okay, so if you want to remember, is, does, do. Is, does, do. Okay, it'll go well. All right. First, let us pray that the Lord would really teach us from his word. (coughs) Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word. It's good for us. Pray that we would be taught by your spirit today, that you would exalt your son, that we would see that fruitfulness is what you desire, what you require from us, and abiding, connecting is the way. And most of all, Lord, let us just see the beauty of your son, who is the true vine, and just convince us of these things and help us to know what it looks like to obey. Just over these next six days, we pray. Amen. Okay, well, the first thing that we notice in this passage uh, is that Jesus says in this first verse, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now, what do we mean when we say true, true vine? I mean, so it's like authentic vine, the genuine article. It's the, it's not a fake, it's not, it's the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So, why true? And maybe secondly, why, why this particular image? It's likely that uh, Jesus is with his followers here and he's walking around, you know, in sort of the Mediterranean countryside and it's quite possible he's walking by a vineyard and, and maybe that was partly it. Uh, but when you start to look in the background of exactly what Jesus means when he says the true vine, the authentic vine, not like the fake vine. What's the fake vine? Uh, what you see is, is something that for the disciples, for, for the people who first heard this saying of Jesus, it probably would have been sort of obvious because they knew their Old Testaments really, really well. Uh, First of all, vine. This idea of a people being like a vine. Uh, In the Old Testament, vine is probably the most commonly used image for the people of God. Israel. They're called the vine. They're called called the vineyard. Uh, They're called uh, the vine all over the place. Uh, Often, or sorry, in one place it's combined with the, the idea that God is the gardener. God is the vine dresser. And basically, when you combine these things together, you'll see what I'm talking about in a second. It basically acts kind of like a hyperlink. Like when you open up an email and someone put a little link there and it takes you to a web page. Okay, this is like a hyperlink that instantly, every time when the disciples heard Jesus say, I'm the true vine, my father's a vine dresser, it was like they clicked a hyperlink and went straight to Isaiah 5. Okay, okay, so we're all on the same page. Isaiah 5. And in Isaiah 5, it says this. Let me sing for my beloved, Isaiah is saying, for my beloved, that is the Lord, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved, the Lord, had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst, hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but 
It yielded wild grapes, or literally, translated would be stink grapes. They're stinky grapes. They're not what you want. And now, the scene transforms and it's a courtroom. Oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it, done in it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes, stink grapes? Only good for birds to come and eat. And, and now I will tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discipline my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it'll be devoured. I'll devour it. I'll break down its wall. It'll be trampled on. It will make a waste. It will not be pruned. That word come to mind from our passage. And bri- or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. And I'll command the rains and the clouds that there will rain no rain upon it. It'll dry up. It'll wither for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts. Gasp is the house of Israel, the men of Judah, his pleasant planting. For he looked for justice. This is the fruit that God was looking for to, to harvest from his vineyard. This is how we know this is a metaphor because, you know, righteousness is not a grape. Uh, he looked for justice and behold, bloodshed. Righteousness. He looked for righteousness, the fruit of righteousness, but behold, an outcry in this word from the Lord via Isaiah, we see uh, its message is that God is this master gardener who's planted these choice vines. He's got the perfect vine. He looked at all the vines at Lowe's or wherever, and he got the best ones. He said, I'm going to plant them. And I picked the perfect fertile soil, fertilizer, all the stuff that farmers do. And he hoed it, and he made it perfect straight lines. And he made sure he put the, he put the watchtower in the middle to keep it safe. And he put the wine vat. And basically, long story short, this is the Cadillac of vineyards. He has done, he's just done everything for this. There, there's no reason that it wouldn't produce fruit. And yet when he goes to harvest, which is, that's why you plant vines, so you go to harvest the fruit, it's, it's useless. It's garbage. The, the fruit of justice, do you notice when it's, he, he went to look for justice, but instead bloodshed. It's the exact opposite. He went to, he, to harvest justice, but bloodshed. He sought the fruit of righteousness, but instead, and in the parallelism sort of of Isaiah, you could say, he looked for righteousness, but instead a riot broke out. The exact opposite of what should have come forth is what come forth, came forth. It's a story of Israel's failure to fulfill the purpose for which they were created. If it's, it's a failure, if we want to use the sort of botanical language of this passage, it's a failure to, failure to flourish. And it's a tragedy. Because this failure to flourish wasn't just about Israel. And it was actually about all of God's good world. And it's about us today. Because God (coughs) did not begin gardening in Isaiah 5, but actually in Genesis 1. That's that's where we see a God with his hands down in the dirt, creating Adam and Eve out of the dust of the ground and and connecting with them on a deep level that, that made him say, okay, you make Eden controlled and beautiful and make the whole world look like that. He formed this deep connection with them. And yet, they chose their own way. They said, if we really want to flourish, you know what we need to do? We need to disconnect. And so they disconnected themselves from God. And so the world, our world, the world that we live in today was plunged into death and decay. And even today, every ounce of pain and discontentment and loss and suffering that you've experienced in the last five minutes or the last 50 years is nothing but an echo of this tragedy in Eden. But God was not surprised or worried. He had a plan. Through his people, Abraham, 
through Abraham and through his, his descendants who would become the nation of Israel, he would offer a way to reconnect what Adam and Eve had, Eve had disconnected. Once again, uh, we could make the world look right and reconnect to the source of all life and flourish like we were meant to. And yet, time and time again, the people of Israel failed. Isaiah 5 is really typical, actually. Try as they might, they always seem to go astray. And so the world, well, how were they going to experience the salvation that God had promised through his chosen people if they kept on failing? How was God, and how maybe we're asking today, how can God fix this mess? In steps Jesus. And, and do you see now how radical it is for Jesus to say, I am the true vine? Uh, all those vines, the vineyards of the past, the ways that God tried to do this with his people all failed, and yet all of history has come to a point in me because I am the one true vine. Uh, I am, he didn't come and say, I am part of the vine. I am part of the vineyard. I'm a good vine. I can teach you how to be a good vine. No. He says, I am the one true vine. This whole vineyard of vines planted perfectly in the perfect place, planted by the perfect gardener, all that, it failed. And yet God, in Jesus, says, I I'm not going to give up. Rather, I'm going to come down. And in Jesus, that, that is what it is. God's vineyard had failed, and so he substituted one true vine. One flourishing vine. One vine that produces what God created it for. To put it short, Jesus is the true Israel. He is what God's people are supposed to be, and he is what we are supposed to be. Jesus is holiness in human flesh. And if we're, if we're going to enter sort of the metaphor here in John 15, the vine and the branches and the gardener and all these things that we're, that we're sort of investigating, if, if fruit, or I guess grapes, are, are the, the thing that the created purpose of a vine, so also Christ-likeness is the created purpose of all human people today. This is what we are meant to produce. And, and that's why the big idea of this sermon, and I think the big idea of the text, is that because Jesus is the source of all true human flourishing, remember, just one, there's just one true vine, since he is the source of true human flourishing, connect to him today. Because uh, just as flourishing, producing the flowers, producing the fruit, that's the point of a vine, so also the point of our lives is to look like Christ. And only when we connect to that life-giving sap that's available through the vine will we ever be able to produce the fruit, the Christ-likeness that God has intended for us. But now, I'm getting a little bit ahead of ourselves there. Um, uh, this last week, Katie and I, we really are into thrift shopping. I don't know if anyone else, to hit up the Goodwill stuff, crowded closet, the whole thing. Love a good bargain. But I was walking around, and I was sort of in the toy section, and what I saw was a puzzle. I don't know if you guys are puzzle people. We're puzzlers. Usually when it's cold out, we're going crazy. But we're puzzlers. And, but what I saw about this puzzle that was interesting and why it caught my eye is because normally a puzzle comes in a box, right? This puzzle was in a Ziploc bag, okay? And if you've ever made a puzzle, you know why this presents a little bit of a problem. Because when you get a puzzle in a box, what you do, if you're, if you're in my family, is everyone sort of jostles for position around the front of the box. You try to kind of prop it up, Perfectly, it always falls over, but you try to prop it up and you're getting as close as you can get to the image to see how am I supposed to put this thing together, right? 
So how are you supposed to, I don't know how whoever bought that puzzle was going to ever put it together. Uh, but Jesus is the front of the puzzle to our human lives. He shows us the final product. He shows us the final image, how we can be restored, how we can put all the pieces of our lives together to be what we were created to be, to be the, the final product to, to flourish, right? Jesus is the true Israel. He is the true human. Not, not that each of us should sort of strive to be first century Jewish rabbis and wander around, I don't know. Not that, uh, but the pattern of his life and what it produced. This is, is where we are meant to be going. And if we belong to Jesus, it is, it is where we are going. And so if we're going to flourish in accordance with that, the created purpose to, to become more like Jesus, first we have to see what we're aiming for. We need the front of the puzzle box. We need to see Jesus, that he is the one true Israel. That's our, by the way, if you're following the is, does, do, that's the is. Jesus is the true Israel, the one true human, or to use the passage's language, right? He is the vine to which we must be connected. And so that's, that's is. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true vine. Secondly, in this passage, we see that the Father... What does the father do? Does, is, does, do, right? The father does. The father cultivates his vine. The father, culti- God the father cultivates his vine. In this passage, what it really is, I mean, it's just a, sort of a drawn out metaphor. You might call it an allegory. But what Jesus is doing is using a common experience uh, to explain sort of an abstract spiritual truth. He's, he's using familiar language. It's kind of like a sermon illustration like I just did with the puzzle, okay? Uh, And so what we wanted, whenever you're reading something like this in the Bible, I hope this is helpful for you just when you're reading, whenever you're reading a story like this, what you want to notice especially is the characters and how they're developed. And um, in this case, that's that's kind of what I'm doing with my sermon here, right? Okay, Jesus is one character. Obviously, he's divine. The branches are another. Uh, But really, actually, the main character in this passage, the main character who actually does things, is, does, do, does, does, is the father, Kind of, it, it's in the background, and yet when it talks about pruning, all these different things that happen, they're all done by the Father. The Father is the one who cultivates his vine. And it's specifically, this passage tells us two ways that the Father cultivates his vine. It's through cleaning, or clearing, cleaning, and pruning. The Father cultivates his vine through cleaning and pruning. First thing we see with cleaning is that God the Father is a diligent gardener who, who cultivates and nourishes his vine toward maximum fruitfulness by clearing and cleaning away the branches that are not actually connected to the vine. This passage is really significant because the the context is this, okay? Jesus, who is the Savior of the world, uh, is hanging out with his disciples on the night before he's going to be arrested, betrayed, arrested, falsely accused, crucified, okay? He's about to die, this, this movement, which is really, uh, it, w- whose aim is to save the whole world, no big deal, uh, well, he's about, to, he's about to go away. And all this momentum that's been growing, the followers that have come alongside and, and seen Jesus for who he really is, uh, well, this movement, its leader is about to die. Okay, what's going to happen? Jesus, uh, so to speak, he's going to sort of let go of the wheel. That he's been, this movement that he's been driving, he's going to drop the reins. And the question is sort of hanging in the air. Are these 12 going to pick him up? Are they going to grab the wheel and know what to do? Or are they not? And, and so he better give a good pep talk. 
Because there's a lot at stake. None of us are standing here today if, 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 if not. And what's, what, and it is a good speech, by the way, 14 through 17. Highly recommend it. You should definitely take a look. But what's interesting is this. Before all that happened, before sort of the speech began, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He's teaching them about, surely, about what it means to be a leader in God's kingdom and all that. But you might remember Peter, who's kind of strong-headed, he says, you'll never wash my feet, right? And Jesus says, you've got to let me wash your feet. Finally, he says, yes. <coughs> and Jesus says to Peter, the one who's bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but it's completely clean. And you are clean, meaning all you disciples who are with him in that room, but not every one of you. Then we get to our passage where Jesus, now in between these two things happening, Judas, who probably you know is the one who betrays Jesus, he's left. He's gone. In John 14, he leaves. And now Jesus says in verse 2, um, sorry, in verse 3, already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Okay, so we weren't clean except for one of us. Then Judas left. Now we are clean. Judas is the unclean branch, the fruitless branch who had to be removed. The father who is cultivating his vine removes those who are fruitless, those who don't belong, which in this case clearly means Judas. And the case of Judas comes with an additional warning in verse 6. It says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Parkview, today we need to hear and heed the warning of the case of Judas. Judas is a branch who blended in with the authentic branches, but actually it was withering and fruitless the whole time. It wasn't until the chips were down that he was really exposed. And his destiny is eternal destruction and misery. It's a tragedy. But here's what's spooky about Judas. It spooks me, uh, at least. See, there's no sign, when you read through the gospel accounts, there's no sign that Judas really looks that different from the other disciples. Uh, you know, when you read, you know, uh, earlier in, in John 14, you know, they're eating supper, and Jesus is like, one of you does not really belong. John leans over, and he's, he asks Jesus, who is it? <laughs> they don't know. It, it wasn't like, okay, it wasn't like, okay, guys, today Jesus, we're, Jesus says, guys, we're going to go out and practice casting out demons. Okay, so let's go. We're going to go over to Capernaum or whatever, and everyone line up across from the demon-possessed person, and then on the count of three, we're all going to exercise our demons. Okay, Peter, good. John, good. James, good. Uh, Judas, come on. No. His demon came out, right? Okay, we're going to go preach. Let's practice preaching. We're going to preach for repentance, preach the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, Peter, yep, your people repent. Yeah, your people repent. Oh, good. And James, and then John, and Barth. Judas, ah, come on. No. And this, it's scary, because there's no reason to think that Judas looked any different. His demons came out. He preached, I'm sure he preached great sermons. It's spooky. It, it, should, it should spook us. It should scare us. And it should, it should also teach us, in reference to this passage, that fruit is not equivalent to ministry deeds done. Because Judas had plenty and they didn't do anything for him because he wasn't connected to the vine. And so, 
we need to hear this because for the 11 who heard this, Judas is gone now, but for the 11 who heard this, this remain in me, abide in me, stay in me, the, the temptation to leave was like the temptation of Judas, right? It was going to be public. It was going to be, you know, to, to leave the Christian community was a noisy thing to do. You, would, you might be brought out into the public square and they'd say, look, recant your testimony about Jesus or we will seize your property. We might kill you. We might beat you, whatever. It was, it was going to be clear in public. But for us today, it's so much easier to blend into the branches. It's so much, you know, it's, it's kind of easy to look Christian, there's not a bunch of danger to come to Parkview Church. No one's going to find out you're here and beat you, right? And therefore, the temptation is much more subtle and maybe even more insidious and maybe more dangerous. You can learn sort of the way that we do stuff. What's, what are you supposed to wear to church, right? What's the part of the song where you, we all sing a little louder, right? What's, what are the good words? What are the bad words that we use? What are the, and you can sort of get yourself into association with the branches without actually being connected to the vine. And so we need, but God desires fruit. And so there's only one way. He, he has created you to look like Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves today, do you look more like Jesus today than you did five years ago? If you've been in Christ that long. Or don't ask yourself, ask your, ask your community group. Ask your friends. Ask your mom, maybe. <laughs> she probably knows. <laughs> ask your spouse. Ask your friends. Most importantly, ask the Lord. Am I, is the way I'm living pleasing to you? Is, is there anything in my life that, it, you, it, that needs to be cut off, that needs to be put away so I can bear the fruit that you want my life to bear? Listen, we are not saved by our fruit. We are not saved by our fruit. Judas is a great example. We're not saved by our fruit. And yet we won't be saved by fruitless faith. And the stakes are high. So let's heed the warning of Judas. And the, the solution, connect to Jesus today. Connect to Jesus today. He is, way, he is eager, eager to connect with us today. The second thing that we see the Father, remember, is, does, do, around, does. The Father does. The Father is a diligent gardener who constantly is working to nourish his vine toward maximum fruitfulness by pruning the branches that are connected to the vine. By pruning the branches that are connected. So I don't know if anyone, this seems like, doesn't this seem like the perfect sort of passage for like, we're here in the early spring. Yesterday was a nice, beautiful day. I don't know, like you guys, we're sort of starting our garden up and hoping we grow a pepper or something. I don't know, that's probably the most we hope for. So, uh, but because we're not really great at gardening. In fact, uh, pruning is really important, uh, I found out from Google, because uh, plants are not necessarily oriented to sort of producing the fruit as we might want it to be produced. So it needs maintenance. It needs care. Uh, Katie and I, we thought we would be incredible gardeners. This first time, I think this is the first year we were married, and we got a little jalapeno plant. And we bought it for like a dollar. We thought, this is going to be great. We'll have jalapenos. We'll save like 50 cents at the grocery store and it'll be wonderful. Well, this plant was amazing. I don't know what its deal was, but it grew up. It was about that tall. And by the end of the summer, we had probably 300 or so jalapenos. Right? Okay, there's only one problem. Each of the peppers was about this big. Okay? Now, anyone who knows anything about gardening probably knows exactly what I failed to do. 
Okay, because I saw that plant coming up, and I saw the little flowers growing on it, and I was like, wow, jalapeno flowers, who knew? Uh, well, every single one of those was going to turn into a pepper. And so if I were a good gardener, what I would have done is I would have pinched off like 80% of those. So instead of it shooting all of its sap and its life and everything it's producing for the sun into all those different peppers and making useless fruit, it would have made like 15 really useful ones, right? Well, okay, long story short, what that plant needed was a good gardener, a, a better gardener. Okay, and, and just like that, there's, there is great comfort, I hope, there is great comfort to us in knowing that while God expects faithfulness from us, in the end, it's God, it's, it's his responsibility. Look at this passage. It's him who will turn faithfulness into fruitfulness. There are times when we're, we're living faithfully, we know we're, we're doing our best to do what God tells us to do, to follow Jesus, to walk by the Spirit and all this, and we aren't seeing the fruit that we think we ought to see. It doesn't look like what, what we think should be produced. And yet, we can be confident because of this that God is doing something. God is always doing something. He will always turn your faithfulness into fruitfulness. When you are doing your best, you're, you are just trying your best to raise your kids to know and serve Jesus. And you see them wandering away. Rest assured that God is using your faithfulness. It, it, who knows what he is? He may be producing fruit in them that, that will not come to harvest for a few years. He may be producing fruit in you through your faithfulness. He may be producing fruit in your neighbors, in your community group who are looking on at your faithfulness and being inspired to great things. What we can be confident about is that God, it is not worthless. I don't care what it looks like. God is producing fruit in your life. God is cultivating his vine. It's just what he does. College students, when you are taking your finals this week and you're feeling overwhelmed and you're maybe even starting to think, I'm just spending all this time on schoolwork. It feels unspiritual. It feels like, what am I, am I? Your work is not unspiritual. God is pruning, cultivating you remain faithful to him. You can please, there's a way that you can actually please God and grow to be more like Jesus in the way that you do your schoolwork. It's, it's awesome. And I'm not just, I don't just mean you'll know if you did this because you got straight A's. No. I mean, God is honored and you are producing spiritual fruit by abiding in Jesus with your, just with your self, self-denying, earnest effort, effort to do your best. That's, that's real fruit. That's real. God, God is cultivating you. It's just what he does. God seems especially to love producing spiritual fruit from situations that look like just, they're just totally barren. God is, read the Bible. I mean, that's, it, he just loves to do that. God loves using faithfulness in just surprising ways that make us turn around and go, only an incredible gardener could have turned this mess around. I know when I look at my life, wow, that's, that's the conclusion I have to come to. I hope it is for you too. Sorry. We just, the, the fact is we just don't know what God's doing, but what we do know is that he is the masterful gardener who will perfectly direct the spiritual resources that he has put into us to, to produce fruit. He is working. He is overseeing spiritual growth in your life so tenderly and lovingly like a, like a good gardener.
And if we're going to flourish in accordance with our created purpose, which is what we're trying to talk about today, we must first, like we said, see that Jesus is what we're going for. He's, he's the aim. He's the front of the puzzle box. He's the one true human. And secondly, that the Father is the one who superintends, who gardens us in our spiritual growth by pruning and by clearing away the branches that don't belong, is, does, and finally, what we do. We have to see that fruitfulness, true fruitfulness, comes through connection to the vine. So connect to the vine. Connect to the vine deeply today. In this picture that Jesus paints, the only command that's actually given, it, it's really striking, actually, when you read, <coughs> when you read this passage, the, the focus, it's obsessively focused on fruit. You go back to Isaiah 5, you see the, the point is about fruit. We're supposed to produce fruit. And yet, you know what's interesting is that we are actually never commanded to produce fruit. We're commanded one thing in two different ways. He says, abide in me. And secondly, abide in my love. This, it's used 10 different times in this passage, in 10 verses, so you know it's crucial. Perhaps the central claim of this passage, apart from what Jesus is saying about himself, but about us, is this. Fruitfulness is the inevitable product of abiding, of connecting. I'm going to say connecting to Jesus. The, the secret, this passage is saying, to all spiritual progress, all spiritual growth, all spiritual fruitfulness is this. Connect to Jesus. If you don't hear anything else, Connect to Jesus. Do you want to fulfill your created purpose? Connect to Jesus. Do you want to escape the fate that was described about Judas? Connect to Jesus. Do you want to experience contentment and the truth about human life and peace? Connect to Jesus. Do you want to live a life that honors God? Connect to Jesus. Do you want to look back like we all will before we die and say, I, I can know objectively that I lived a life that was just a success? Connect to Jesus. This is the answer. Uh, whenever anyone in your community group asks you a question, whenever any of your coworkers ask you about anything, whenever, this is the answer. This is the ultimate answer to everything. This is the best advice you could ever hear. Connect to Jesus. It's all about connecting to Jesus. Get more specific, obviously, you know. But connect to, to, connect to Jesus must be the ultimate answer for all of us in every day of our life. And that's because in the same way that before, uh, before Jesus came, Israel was the only way to connect to God, that nation. So now connection to God, uh, connection to Jesus is the only way to live a life that produces the fruit that God has created us for. That is connecting to him, abiding in him. And it's actually a beautiful thing and it's actually wonderful news. Because every blessing has come to us in Jesus. You know, when we talk about the gospel, we often talk about how we've had our sins forgiven, which is a wonderful reality. And it, it, of course, it comes because of Jesus, uh, because his, uh, he has traded our mess for his uh, marvelousness. And yet, uh, sometimes we forget that apart from just sort of forgiving our sins, sort of giving us a get-out-of-hell-free card or something like that, God has actually established an incredible connection between ourselves and his Son. In fact, the fact is, Jesus is the only one who's saved. God just pulls him through the gap along with anyone who happens to be holding onto his hand as tight as they can, right? Connect to this Jesus. Uh, and not only that, but every resource that is available in Jesus is now ours because we've been connected to him so deeply attached to his perfect son that every ounce of God's affection, joy, peace, 
providence, his love for his son is no more than his love for us. And so we are connect. That means, here's what that means, okay? I experienced this just, okay, I was, Katie and I were going to get groceries, as one does, and we're going, and someone sort of cuts me off on the road, right? Makes me a little upset. We get there, some, there's some driving snafus. They really, I don't know about you, they, they can get in my head, okay? And we go into the grocery store, and I just realize I'm just cascading in frustration, and I'm getting a little angry. And it's silly because that situation's behind me, but it's starting to go sideways. I'm a little short with Katie. I'm a little short with the people around me. I'm, I'm frustrated. And I realize I'm, abi- I'm preaching on abiding this week. And I just take a moment. I just say, Katie, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to. I'm getting angry about this, and I really shouldn't be. And I, just, I prayed for a moment. I just, and it wasn't anything. You're not going to think, wow, what an incredible thing you've said, Pastor. I just prayed, and I said, Lord, t- I'm sorry. I'm angry. Take away my frustration. Just give me the peace of Jesus. And because God has connected me to his son by his spirit, this vital organic connection to his son, that means I don't have to come up with patience. You don't have to come up with it because it's right. there's an ocean of patience. There's an ocean of peace right at your side because you're so connected to the one who has all the peace. He has all of it. And so in that moment, I was asking for peace. That It's just right there. It's vitally connected to me. And that's, that's Parkview. That is, I think that's what abiding means. When you're frustrated and you're thinking, how am I going to go another day, you know, at home? I've got these kids, I've got this job, and all the pressures that you have on you. How are you going to get patience? Look to abide, connect to him. He's got it right there. He wants to shoot it your way. When, when you come home, husbands, and I don't know about you, but often I feel like, man, I just had a hard day at work. I don't know how much energy I have left to give to my family. I, can't, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm being a good husband. I don't worry because you know why? I don't have to muster up good husbanding because there's a good husband in me. Jesus is the perfect husband who gives his life for his bride. And so I don't have to muster up. It's right there. So I, it's all about just abiding in Jesus and saying, make me into what you have begun. And this really, this is how God produces fruit. It's in these mundane little actions when we wash the dishes, you know, and, and you don't resent your roommates or your spouse or your kids for it or your parents for it. And, and you just joyfully do it. And you're asking because you're relying on God to give you the joy that you need to do the things that don't feel fun in the moment. When you find the spiritual strength to be, be honest with your neighbor about your faith, uh, you, God is transforming you in these little mundane moments into the people, into the fruit, to produce the fruit that God has made us to produce. And so the beautiful thing is that from beginning to end, it is, it is God who produces the fruit. And he has just called us to connect to his son. And so I pray that we would be a fruitful, fruitful place. That Parkview, we would just be marked by this incredible Christ-likeness. Because when, I mean, you look at Jesus, people just wanted to see him, wanted to know him, wanted to be near him because he was incredible. And when we start to look like Jesus, I pray our church would be beautified and the watching world would have no, nothing to do but to say, you know what? The only way I can explain it is maybe Jesus did rise from the grave, because he did. And so as we wrap up this I Am series, I hope we've, we've seen these seven really stunning statements that Jesus makes about himself, that he's the bread of life, that he's the, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, and finally today, the true vine. And I pray, we've, we've sort of made this investment, and I pray that we would really capitalize on it in our own lives, in our community groups, and just as a church, that we wouldn't just let the series sort of pass away, but that we would capitalize on it by reminding one another and ourselves 
First of all, what we've seen is Jesus' deity. These words are just, the words that he said about himself were just dripping with this because he was truly God. That we would remind one another and ourselves about his beauty, that he shows us what life should really be like. And finally, that we would remind one another and ourselves about his love because without it, we would, there'd be no one in this room. We would be totally lost. So, Lord, let's just praise God and let's pray. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for your son who teaches us what it means to truly bear the fruit that you, that you intend for us to produce, that you have created us to produce. We pray that we would connect deeply with your son today. We pray that we wouldn't uh, forget your words and forget that at our right hand is just endless supply of patience and peace and joy if we would only connect with you. We pray that we would do those little mundane, moment by moment, returning to you uh, to ask you for the resources that we need to honor you, to live a life that pleases you. We pray that you would do this to make your name great in our lives and in the city, we pray. Amen. Okay, two quick things is uh, we did communion today, so if you could help the ushers by grabbing your communion cup and throwing it on, out on the way out. Second thing is as you go out, if you are looking for a place to put offerings, there's boxes in the back. Uh, and so now please rise, and I will send you out with a benediction from Ephesians 3. <coughs> Receive this word from Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Go in the love of Jesus. Parkview.